0: You know, I love being an artist. I couldn't be more fortunate to be you know where i am and i think that when when we really kind of dedicated space time and a small team to doing what would be perceived as fashion or as uh, a brand i couldn't think of doing it any other way than and i do the art and i also didn't want to put anything out into the world that would somehow negate what i had already put forth and the ideologies within that
1: I am Susie Menkes, and you are listening to my podcast, Creative Conversations. As a journalist reporting on the global fashion industry, I want to take you backstage and give you an insight into my world. Listen to my exclusive conversations with creatives, industry leaders, and those whose voices have some of the greatest impact. I think you might find it interesting and maybe intriguing. The artist Sterling Ruby explains in this week's podcast why he was invited to take part in Paris Haute Couture with his label SR Studio CALA Couture. He tells me how he went from working on a construction site to building a high fashion collection. Coming from a hippie background, Sterling Ruby talks about the challenges he faces today as an artist and designer. He created an urban effect working on the surface of materials with bleach, minerals and hand dyeing, pushing the boundaries between different artistic mediums. The artist first dipped his brushes in the fashion world when Ralph Simmons and he met and forged a friendship. It took them first to Dior and Calvin Klein, and then beyond on a route to Americana. The critically acclaimed LA-based artist is best described by the Gargosian Gallery, which says, Sterling Ruby's work engages with issues related to autobiography, art history, and the violence and pressures within society, employing diverse aesthetic strategies and mediums, including sculpture, drawing, collage, ceramics, painting, and video, He examines the tensions between fluidity and status, experimentism and minimalism, the abject and the pristine. Let's hear from Sterling Ruby himself on his approach to couture and his rise to fashion via the art world. I want to start by saying to you how much I enjoyed watching your show and, you know, I I felt I was there, which is quite an achievement when all the designers, you know, just plonk something in the middle of nowhere and um, I really felt that yours had got some meaning to it congratulations on pulling it off in difficult times
0: thank you Susie thank you so much yeah difficult times indeed
1: you must tell me one thing why why does it say night gallery is that it, it night gallery on your
0: oh I'm, I'm sorry I'm wearing a shirt it's um it's it's some friends of mine Uh, And they run a gallery here in Los Angeles. It's called Night Gallery. And it was originally started by uh, these two women. And they rented out this tiny, tiny little space in the heart of of downtown Los Angeles. And they would only have shows open throughout the night. So they would, you know, they were basically, you'd you'd show up at like 11 o'clock at night. And then they'd run until four in the morning or something like that. They evolved. They've gotten much bigger. Um, they're right down the street from my studio. So uh, no, no particular significance. But I, you know, I, I put this shirt on this morning thinking of them.
1: But perhaps not so easy for them in the pandemic to um, open all night.
0: No, they I mean, they've kind of stopped the all night thing uh, many years ago. But yeah, irregardless, it's difficult for everybody right now
1: exactly but i wanted to talk to you to something that may have been difficult but came out so well um it's pretty amazing that you were invited to take part in the um paris haute couture digitally, of course, in this COVID period, but it really is exceptional for someone without a definite fashion background to be invited to show at High Fashion in Paris. But then it's also perhaps pretty amazing for uh, an LA-based artist whose work is known around the art world who suddenly becomes a fashion designer. (laughs) Explain a bit more about that. Well, let's go to the easy part.
0: Um, We had been invited to do uh, to, to to participate in couture and and that is um, that's an honor and we also kind of found in a way that's how we started the the label to a certain extent we were invited to do pity and we had already been kind of like strangely and conceptually building this this thing particularly within the studio we even went so far as to you know make labels for ourselves and you know. And Pitsy was an invitation and also an honor. And so we, we thought, well, you know, that worked out pretty well. We should maybe, maybe maybe do this. It was also, you know, since we did the first collection in 2019, we we had probably had three other times when we thought about doing another collection. And each time, because of COVID, we, we kind of backed out. And uh, every time we backed out, we... We just scrapped it and and started over again. So you know, even though the circumstances leading up to last week were significantly even harder uh, than they were before, we felt that maybe for all of us it was it was what we needed to do. And in many ways, for me anyway, it was a, it was a very big boost of morale since we've all been so scattered since March.
1: You know? Sure. It's interesting to me because Los Angeles has not been up to now famous for California couture. It's a whole new world, a whole new line. Um, but what did it mean to you to create a show with a background that was taken on the West Coast, but some time ago, not not in preparation for this show? And um, was the fact that you videoed the collection on the final last day of the Trump presidency, was that significant? Did it mean something to you? It definitely meant
0: something to me. Um, And, you know, I think the best creatives, you know, whether that be, you know, writers, film directors, artists, designers, if there is any real distinction anymore, um, you know, I think that they always incorporate the time that they're living in into their, their practices. And for me, it was just kind of inevitable to think about... Um what was going on? what has been going on and and also to to kind of think back about my own autobiography, which is probably how i I first came to kind of understand clothing really and the power of clothing and the and the and the kind of performance of clothing and the kind of behavioral aspects of of clothing you know it was it was hard watching you know the the capitol get stormed because, you know, in many respects, I know that I know that contingency and that demographic all, all too well, because that's kind of where I grew up, you know? I mean, I grew up in this, in this very small community at the time. Maybe it's grown more now, but at the time it was this extremely small town um, right on the Mason-Dixon border of Pennsylvania and Maryland. And, um, you know, my parents were hippies, and um, my father was a GI uh, on the the college bill. You know, he wanted to go to college, but he didn't have the the income for it. So he actually he went into the service and was stationed in Bitburg, Germany. And he met my mother, who was Dutch, at a bar. And I, I think maybe you know, there's there's some there's some back and forth about when it actually happened, but there's some. <laughs> it seems uh, probable that. I was conceived that evening, and we lived in, in, in the Netherlands for a little bit, and then we moved to Baltimore, and my parents were really, you know, when they came back to the States, you know, well, my mother, having been there for the first time, really not speaking English very well, um, and them kind of wanting something that was a little bit more of an escapist fantasy, and so they, you know, they had always prescribed to these um, magazines, like hippie magazines about like how to work with the earth. And, you know, so they had this idea that they were going to be farmers. And they bought this old rundown farm in this little town called New Freedom, Pennsylvania. And, you know, I, I moved there when I was eight and I just, I, I really wanted nothing but to get out, you know. But the the high school that I had to, middle school and the high school that I had to go to was about an hour and a half bus drive each way. So I'd spend three hours in this bus. You know, around the age of, you know, 11, 12, 13, I became interested in punk music. And, you know, in a little town like that, it was, it was very easy to see the people who you wanted to um, be associated with because... We were all trying to be, you know, skaters and punks in this tiny little farming community, this agriculture community.
1: were well, such an extraordinary artist because you covered so many disciplines. And, you know, on the one side of the art world, you were involved in painting, sculpture, um, ceramic firing, metalworks, And in your early adult life, as far as I understood it, you were actually working on building construction. Is this what you did to escape from your parents?
0: Well, you know, I mean, my, my parents were, were were really out there in a way. And they, you know, they understood the the kind of difficulties that I that I had, you know, kind of being in this town. Um and the difficulties were were kind of harsh difficulties, you know, at a time not totally knowing what my own sexuality was and having all these other people, you know, accuse me of, of one thing or another because of the way that I looked. I uh I, I graduated. I did I did graduate from high school and I I didn't have any anywhere to go. I wasn't I didn't think of myself as an artist. As a matter of fact, I think in many ways, at that at that period of time, I couldn't have even thought of being an artist. Like an artist, almost seemed something that was only in the past. You know, uh, like Rubens was an artist, or you know, Da Vinci was an artist. But it it didn't even dawn to me, um, you know, that there was Warhol, or that you know there was, you know, even at that at that time, y- y- you know, somebody like Barbara Kruger. Um so I finally graduated, but I, I didn't have any place to go. I didn't I didn't have very good grades. And um I loved going to Washington, DC, because that was where my contingency was. That was where the the, the music was and that was where the, the the punk movement was. And so I took this job at a at a union construction site and I started working construction and you know, in many ways. I uh, I would sleep in my car. I would go to shows at night. A lot of people slept in their car on on, on the construction site. I was with all these other guys that were in their thirties. You know, most of them had these like um, you know trailers that they slept in. But um, you know, a couple of years later, I I was depressed. You know, I didn't I didn't want this, and I I kind of felt like I I had screwed up. You know, that I didn't I didn't plan for anything. And my mother, my mother had a friend who taught wildlife illustration at this school in Pennsylvania. It was it was a four year, um, very basic art school where you learn the foundation of art. And I had a drawing portfolio, uh, and I got in, and I started this four year unaccredited um, art school that was extremely foundational. And when I say foundational, I mean, you know, um everything from, you know, perspective studies and form and, you know, depth and color, additive and reductive sculpture, things that weren't contemporary at all, like really, really hardcore, you know, figure drawing studies. And, you know, we draw a bowl of fruit for eight hours a day. And so later on, when I finally realized that there was an entirely other uh, era, many, many eras and many generations of artists and that artists were working today, I realized I, I had kind of gotten myself into a position where I, I I started art school in a way that most artists, my, um, my nature don't, you know. And in many ways, like, I kind of feel like that was... Um, that was very important to learn all of those things that most artists my age weren't learning because most artists were going to these kind of very very conceptual at the time you know performance based minimal based practices, and they weren't learning any of these these kind of um, foundational principles but
1: well, there's something um, i'd like to ask you here being a fashion person, how is it that in all this you you, not suddenly, but you built a fashion focus on 3 draping and drafting. And in your studio, I, I've looked at the pictures of it, and I see that you prepare all the um, fabric for the clothes. You do technical work. You do fabrics with dyeing and washing and rinsing. It's extraordinary to see all these techniques and extraordinary, too, to imagine that this came, I don't know how long after, but, say, 15 years after you had done this very um, intense artwork... How did you get from one to the other?
0: I mean, I guess I guess that's the thing. I, I maybe I'm I was into these stories, you know, and this kind of narrative too long. But I do believe all of these things are connected. You know, the fact that this this school, this high school that I went to, you know, there were there were hunting seasons, and every hunting seasons the boys sometimes, you know, the the girls as well would come in with these new orange and camo dress. It was, it was like seasonal, seasonal wear, you know, and it's the same thing. You know, I, I understood the power of, of kind of, um, performance and behavior when you place yourself in this vulnerable situation where somebody doesn't feel like you belong. I didn't realize that at the time, but then later on, you know, as I started to, to have exhibitions and, and be an artist and also, you know, work with people who were were really, really just absolutely influential. Um, you know, when I finally made it out to California, which has now been 20 years ago, you know, I was lucky to become, you know, the artist Mike Kelly's teaching assistant. We talked about all of these things because he grew up in a very similar scenario, very working class um, family who didn't understand art, didn't respect culture, you know, And then came the fashion people. That was the big thing. You know, I had all these friends that I started making, say, 20 years ago. And and these were great, great artists. You know, like, as I said, Barbara Kruger and and Nancy Rubens and, and Chris Burden, Ed Richer. All of these artists that I looked up to and were extremely influential to me. But then this other group of people came into my life. And that changed a lot of things, too. You know, we're talking about uh, Peter Moulier, Mathieu Blaisé, Raph, you know, Rick Owens, Michelle Lemay. And I, I, I don't think that I put those things together, really. Like my, my childhood experiences that were in many ways informing how I was feeling about my art and feeling about the politics and feeling about
1: America... What about your wife, Melanie Schiff, and her photographic skills? Because that's very much part of your um, life, isn't it? The um, photographic images. So at what point did she come in, or or maybe you don't think that she's influenced you? (laughs) No,
0: no, no. Um, Melanie has influenced me in more ways than anybody has. You know, but she's also heavily involved in in everything that we do. Um, Not just the, the label, but, you know... The art too. Uh, we have a, we, you know, we've we've kind of built this studio. It's it's not again like in terms of the amount of people that we have. It's not it's not huge. The label is eight people, including myself, so it's very very intimate. Uh, the studio side is between fifteen and twenty people, so it's still it's not not a very big endeavor. But you know, we we tend to do it together. Aesthetically, though. Um, I love Melanie's photos. I love them. You know they're they're great. Um, she's a she's an amazing artist. And when I first started to look at at traditional printing, really high end, you know, uh, textile printing, um, you know, there's 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 a couple of different aspects to that that intrigue me. There was, of course, the weaving. Uh, there was of course the the rinsing and the dyeing and the and the you know additive and deductive nature of of treating fabrics but then there was also the really high printing of uh, of of fabrics on silks on you know all of these different types of uh, Italian really high-end you know, scarving you know kind of textiles and I've always felt that melanie has a very Particular sense of depth and repetition and nature in her photographs and light that I've always kind of you know I've always felt intriguing and she's a very she's a very traditional photographer in in the sense that she does all of her printing Um, she's very very much um, you know you know in there looking at at printing whether it be a silver gelatin print or an inkjet print, you know, she's very, very involved with the printing. And so this kind of became something that the two of us um, were able to do together. We we, we do it mostly at this, this printer in Italy. Um, and when we get these rolls of, of fabric in, you know, it's always kind of amazing to see how these photos have transferred themselves onto textiles.
1: Let's talk about your studio where you prepare all your fabric for the clothes. And the um, technical work of treating the fabrics with dyeing and washing and rinsing. I'd love you to talk me through the techniques that you use to achieve all these wondrous effects. Can you really do all that under one roof, all those different ways of doing things? Mostly, yes,
0: we can do it under one roof. Um, You know, I was very fortunate um, years ago, I, I... I bought this property, uh, which is right on the the kind of edge of downtown Los Angeles. It's, uh, it's four acres and there are a number of buildings on it. Uh, and we are able to kind of carve out because it's a, it's an industrial space. We're able to kind of carve out some room for that type of, um, uh, processing now, you know, because we do so little in such small amounts, um. It's all, it's all done by hand. I mean, we, we were able to install washing machines and dryers, but, you know, for the most part, we, we only use uh, materials that are, are natural and, that you know, you know, the way that we process things are, are always kind of, um, we can pack them up and, and uh, you know, uh, get rid of those in a, in a kind of safe nature. But, you know, a lot of the effects... And a lot of the treatments, in many ways, come out of, of painting and, and, and drawing and kind of, you know, different appliques of, um, of art. You know, the first time that I started to um, use bleach or use, uh, you know, a vegetable dye was really on a canvas for a painting. It wasn't on a, uh, on a garment. And, you know, I started making these, this series of of paintings called BC, they were called bleach collages. Um, And, you know, I started using those as these kind of um, grounds um, and then, you know, kind of applying textiles on top of them. I started working with an elastic manufacturer who made sport jerseys, um, you know, so that I could have these really deep, almost Russian constructivist stripes on these paintings. And over a while uh, of, you know, after a while of time, I started to have all of these big piles of, of, of leftovers, you know, these kind of like piles of different colors, different types of treatments. And that's really how I started making my own clothes in the studio. I wanted to cannibalize my own practice. I wanted to basically save a portion of each project, whether it be a painting or a sculpture, set it to the side, make something for myself to wear or for a friend to wear or somebody in the studio to wear. And that's how it all started. And we just kept going and going and going. Um, you know, I have one person in the studio that I work with and we do research. Um, so we figure out how best to make, uh, a vegetable dye that will permeate a certain type of textile, certain type of fiber, how we can make it, um, uh last longer how we can get more vibrancy out of it but it's all really done by hand and then that gets kind of extracted and we're able to kind of lay those yardage pieces out on a cutting table and place patterns over top of them so that we can actually treat those like collages too when we lay out a pattern We only use a pattern that we know would have a kind of juxtaposition, which would be something that would be very obvious that we didn't make the garment as a PFD and then dye it. We want everybody to know that we dye, we cut, we sew.
1: Show that we've just all seen digitally. It has this fascination with Puritans and pilgrims who arrived, I think, in um, America around the 17th century. How did you get involved with this? I mean, is this something as a child that you knew something about? Have you looked at Amish quilt making since? And what do you see in it? I mean, in some ways, your work is very dark, but there's a sort of sexual innocence about the work you put into that Paris um, collection that we've just seen.
0: You know, again, I I think that there's, there's a lot of different references and a lot of different influences for me about that. Um, you know, it's interesting to look at that history, particularly at this time in America. You know, the Puritans and the pilgrims in the 17th century you know kind of viewed the united states as this redeemer nation um you know it's uh you know it it seems kind of um perfect timing to to reacclimate ourselves with this kind of uh narrative of the united states when um you know we're in such kind of um you know, such a, such kind of ongoing violence framed as, as patriotism, you know? Um, But I was also thinking about the Quakers, the Mennonites and the Amish, the way that, you know, there are these similar roots and all three of these groups kind of rose up as Protestant, you know, religious reformers. um, And there was this kind of notion of passivity within that. Now, in terms of my autobiography, we grew up in a in a in a community that was very very um, uh, close to Amish, um, and so you know even as as a kid who was in like you know my own cut up shirts and you know my own I would draw these album covers and sew them into the backs of my jacket and you know we would be skate skating around this tiny little town you know and you'd be sitting there at the one convenience store on a curb with your skateboard right next to, you know, these three young Amish kids. And, you know, it was, it was for me something very American that I, again, didn't totally understand until much later. But like, that's a crazy thing to think about, like this place in in what would possibly be considered middle America being like this composite of all of these different things and different beliefs and different religions and also different looks, you know, and I kind of love that. Um, You know, even thinking back to, you know, a teenager growing up there, it was weird. You know, there was a lot of different people who had a lot of different thoughts. Uh, and different wishes.
1: And then how do you feel, how do you personally feel about what you have done in fashion? The first show I saw, as I told you, was that Pitti Imagineer uh, menswear trade fair in Florence. That was in 2019. Um, and it was very sophisticated and very beautifully, beautifully made. And this um, latest one, which of course we're not seeing, we're not able to touch it, um, yeah, unfortunately, yeah. like all the other shows. But all the same, there are layers and layers of detail and um, just the fabric and the shapes of the things going around the head and hiding the face. I mean, all those things were very meaningful, it seemed to me, about how, how women feel today and what they're wearing.
0: I, You know, from a, a kind of narrative perspective, I was thinking of it, you know, because we're, we're in California, because I've been in Los Angeles now for 20 years. I, um, I was almost thinking of it from a, a kind of Hollywood perspective, you know, and and this kind of went into even like the, the hair and makeup. I wanted to put something forth that was a little bit film noir, um, this kind of smoky essence of American history seen through my lens. And you're right, it's very layered. You know, there are things that have a complete break, start, a complete break and a start. And I think that those are, um, for me, kind of collage-type elements to building a collection, building a show. We do do everything in the studio. I mean, almost everything. You know, obviously some of the bags and the shoes we can't produce in the studio. But for the most part, we, we do. We, um, and I think that's part of my synopsis of, of, like, accepting, you know, the idea that I might have something to add to couture. Because you know the idea of the Atelier and the studio is so present in my practice, whether it be painting sculpture ceramics or textiles or garments, um, I think that there is this kind of notion of the hand, and I kept thinking, well, I'm obviously not doing a traditional couture show in terms of the you know, the, the volume and the embellishment and maybe the bourgeois, you know, kind of costume nature of traditional couture. But there is something a little bit more in line with, you know, the art history of the Bauhaus, looking at tactility as as soul, you know. Even in art, I mean, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not suggesting that this is only in fashion, but sometimes in art too, you have these, things that have so many skilled hands kind of attached to it that it almost seems that there is no hand. Um, And for us, working at such a small scale at the moment, I really like that idea that we might work on a sample and then we work on the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh sample. And when you look at the first one again, and it's kind of ragged, it's a little rough, um, it has it has more soul. And, um, you know, for me, that's very much how I work in the studio, irregardless,
1: without hierarchy, depending on materials. It doesn't matter. Uh, there's also a feeling that you were just mentioning there, the idea of reused things, that um, you're not... Just taking new fabrics, quite the opposite, really. You're working things in. I'm not quite sure what I was looking at when I saw some knitted, very chunky cardigan. And I mean, I saw it online, and it was on sale at uh, over three thousand um, dollars. And there were denim jeans for about six hundred dollars. But I, th- I think there was there was a lot more to it, wasn't it? That I couldn't really see that you'd worked a lot of things. You'd worked with different layers, and so these are not just simple pieces that you churn out that you you think look good it's not just a visual thing with you but there's something very deep in your soul that's coming up with things and also different materials all used pieced together am i making sense
0: i hope so yes i <laughs> i i um you know i love being an artist i i i couldn't be more fortunate to be you know where i am and i think that when when we really kind of dedicated space, time, and you know a, a small team to doing what would be perceived as as fashion or as as, as uh, a brand, um, I couldn't think of doing it any other way than than I do the art. And I also didn't want to I I didn't want to put anything out into the world that would somehow negate what I had already you know kind of put forth. And the ideologies within that—it's still hard, though. You know, we're in California; we're not even in Europe; um, <laughs> we're not in New York either. You know, uh, you, you know, the idea of production here is beyond difficult. Last year, we had—we were working with a very small factory. Um, this this husband and wife team and a couple of their family members, uh, and they—they they unfortunately had to shut down. And they were really the only ones that we could trust uh, with production, and that we were seeing really good details with. Uh, and so we we had a long discussion with them, and we we decided to bring them in house. So we acquired all of their equipment, and we carved out space in our studio for them. And so now we have we have that that tiny team of uh, husband and wife uh, that does most of the machine
1: sewing in in your secret fashion soul (laughs) do you do you want these clothes to be considered as works of art and to be collected and kept forever and maybe displayed in a gallery rather than being worn or as well as being worn can you think of these clothes you say it's hard in um, your city to find people to um, make things in the fashion world I mean, do you have a dry cleaner who could make your clothes work in the way that um, clothes have to work for people today? I think so.
0: I, I, I mean, I think that there's different tiers to, the, to what we're producing. And I think right now we're, we're doing what we can. And it seems responsible. We are only making enough to, to put out. Um, I think that that's also something that's that's relatively interesting. I've always, you know, you asked the question about recycling, and I've always felt that my practice had recycling at the heart of it. But that was through the kind of history of collage. You know, whether or not you look at a at a Kurt Schwitters or a, or a Picasso in early collage, you know, these notions of illicit mergers. You know, these things that were never necessarily meant to go together, just kind of being forced in on one another, but most of the time, these were kind of recycling projects. And so, you know, the idea that right at the moment, we are only making enough to, you know, to, to, to put out. We're not, you know, we're not producing, you know, I have a hard time looking at, at some designers that I really admire and, you know, I can't help but feel that the system is forcing them to make too much, and you know, you see markdowns and markdowns and markdowns before you know a new collection is even seen for a month. Um, the speed of it and the kind of excess of it is something that we're trying to um, figure out on our on our own terms.
1: One um, person who you know very well who we're all longing to see is Raph Simmons, working with um, Muji Prada. I understand that you um, actually met him first about 14 years ago at a gallery in L.A., and then you discovered something very interesting, that you were neighbours. Tell us about that.
0: Um, I, yeah, I'm, I met Raph. He was friends with a with an art gallery that I was working with at the time about fourteen years ago here in l a and he brought him over to the studio uh the, this dealer brought raff over to the studio i think at the time raff was interested in in some of the ceramic work and i don't you know i it, artist' studios are all different depending on the artist, but you know sometimes we do studio visits with people and it's you know um it's very awkward, you know, because this is a, a pretty intimate space and everything is out and, you know, some things aren't finished and, uh, you know, or it's, it's a mess or it's too clean. You know, I think that everybody has this perception of what an artist studio should be. And it doesn't always work. You know, sometimes it's a very awkward um, half an hour, hour, hour and a half with people. RAF was one of those extremely rare situations where... He came in and we were like brothers from another mother. (laughs) You know, like right, right away. Um, We got along so well that we, we just, we, we started, you know, anytime I'd go to Europe, I'd go to his house. Anytime he'd come here, he'd come here. You know, it just became a, one of the best friendships I've ever had in my life. And then, you know, maybe a few years later, I had said something about my aunt moving to this tiny little town over the Belgian border. And he said, that's where my parents live. That's where I grew up. And we finally did the the math and we did, you know, the the kind of demographic, you know, of course the Netherlands and Belgium is not, those two countries are not very large. Um so even if we were on absolute opposite sides we'd still be pretty close to one another but we were so close. Um my whole family lives in a, in a in a city and a and a kind of like suburb uh around Eindhoven in the Netherlands. And you know, Raft grew up right on the on the kind of border of of Belgium and the Netherlands which you know is is in any direction between Eindhoven you have Antwerp, Brussels and that was That was also something because similarly to other people that I had met, like Mike Kelly, um, you know, we had a background which was, was primarily working class family background with very, very, very limited access to culture. And that that became a kind of anchor for our friendship as well.
1: But are you still in contact with your um, relatives who are living in that part of the world, or has it all behind you?
0: Um, I I am I am I mean not so often. You know I've unfortunately not traveled for the past uh, year, um, so I haven't I haven't seen them any time. But I I do work with a I work with a big gallery in Brussels. So anytime I go there, they either come to see me or I go to see them, and you know.
1: We WhatsApp, you know. <laughs> Talking about um, Raf Simmons, I, I have to talk about Calvin Klein. And it was so joyous, the decoration that you put into these shows. It was extraordinary. And it, it was a sort of revolution because you, it was moving um, Calvin Klein from minimal to maximal. It, it was a revolution, but it was also very... It's powerful, it was very thought-making, but somehow it just didn't work. I, I don't know, you tell me, What what's the story behind that?
0: I don't really know. To tell you, Susie, I, I you know, um, it was such a good project for me. Um, and part of that was because I was with my friends. You know, we would go to New York, we would fly to New York every week, pretty much. And, um, you know, we'd sit there at the table with Raph and with Peter and with Mathieu and with Clement. And, you know, we would figure out all of the things that um, we could do within this brand, this American brand that had such a, a eponymous, you know, kind of history to it. And how to how to reinvent it, really. And it was, in my opinion, going in a very good direction. Um, you know, I think that the things that we were trying to pull from the brand's history, but also kind of like think about the, the place that we were all in, whether it be politically, whether it be, you know, in terms of Culture, whether it be in terms of fashion, you know, even the way fashion had changed over the course of, you know, Calvin Klein's period there, and then you know, uh, PVH buying it. We were working on, um, you know, my last really big project that we were working on was this, the the Madison Avenue store, which was going to be the store that we were working on was so exciting. I mean, it it, It was certainly uh, colorful. Well, no that that was the temporary store. That was that was something I needed to do quickly and immediately in order for the first collection to go into the store, like a, a a changing of the guard, you know. But the real renovation of the store was coming, and it was it was so exciting to work on this insanely big architecture project, and to also have John Paulson's um uh um. Minimalism? Well, no, I mean, no, no, just having Pawson himself, you know, I sat down with Pawson, and uh, he came to the studio, we had a couple of different visits, you know, and I just, I just wanted to, to know how Pawson felt about all of this. And, you know, he was, he was, he was cool with it. You know, he was, he was okay with everything that we were doing. Um, you know, and Pawson was also, at, at the time, like, thinking about Pawson and Judd and Calvin Klein, thinking about this group of people, or even Dan Flavin, you know, this group of people that were creatives working together to kind of bridge the gap between, say, fine art, commercial art, design, sculpture, furniture, store display. They were doing that. Like, that was such an amazing project at the time. Um but in the end, I don't know if, I don't know. I, I, in the end, I'm just not sure if, if it was playing itself out the way that the company thought that it should be in terms of speed.
1: I have a last and very important question to ask you. I hope you're going to be able to answer it. Are you an artist? Are you a fashion designer? Are you a bit of each
0: I'm not sure how to make that distinction, really. Um, I want to be whatever it is that gives me the most
1: freedom. That's it. You are also an artist in fashion, and I can't wait until this um, delivery comes and that um, you're going to, if I've understood it correctly, you're um the all the pieces are going to be cut to order, and um the couture collection it's going to be retailed round in a sort of trunk show, the trunk show idea, so that people see what they're getting is is this true or have I got it all wrong?
0: This is true, yeah, we're um going to try something new um we'll see if it works uh you know it's it's been difficult for everybody during covid uh so we're you know we're thinking about the stores, we're thinking about the you know, we're, we're thinking about the consumer. I mean, one of the things that shocked me the most when we actually put something out there for people to buy was that we had such a diverse group of, of people. We had, a, you know, we had everything from a 20-year-old musician to a 70-year-old art collector wanting to buy our our clothes. And one of the reasons was that, you know, they all seemed to want to have something that was either limited or unique. And so the idea now that, you know, some of these stores can't even have people in them, um, we wanted to have something that was as intimate as we could possibly make for them. Um, So we're doing Zoom meetings and we're showing everybody the trims and the fabrics and, and, you know, the way everything is, is um, constructed. And we hope, in the end, we hope that we're only making as much as we need to make again
1: and that the stores will be able to um, profit from that. <laughs> to me, you are an artist with fashion and many other things as well, not just fashion, but all these different um, disciplines you use in the artistic world and um, it's been so interesting and exciting to talk to you because you are in fashion but you're also on the other side for real beauty and real imagination and it's something very special to find.
0: Thanks Susie, thank you so much, it was very sweet of you.
1: Thank you, Sterling Ruby. You are a hugely successful modern artist with multiple talents. It's so interesting to hear how you have impacted our fashion world, crossing the boundary as an artistic medium of your personal self-expression. Who knew that the Amish quilt-making you saw as a child would inspire you into participating in high-level, handmade, cut-to-order garments of today, all produced from scratch in the atelier of your LA studio. I can't wait to watch your label SR Studio, C-A-L-A, Evolve. Do join me next week when I shall be talking to the Hermes creative director, Nadej Vanhee-Cybulski, of the French luxury goods brand, not just known for its orange packaging and equestrian influences, but the status Kelly and Bardo bags, which waiting lists have become famous in themselves. We will talk about her timeless and witty design and approach to color and form. Creative Conversations with Suzy Menkes is produced by Natasha Kahn, music by Jörg Zuba, graphics by Paul Wallace, and edited by Tim Thornton. To find my articles, visit susiemenkes.com and susiemenkes on Instagram. If you enjoyed the podcast, then please do rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends. You can find me on all the usual channels.